Learning Church from the Word, Study 4, and we're looking at picturing headship uh, today. Um, as we have done a study uh, a while ago now, and I'm just picking up on it now, uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 2 to verse 16. I think before we do anything else, we'll read the passage and try to be blessed uh, by understanding it as we go down uh, together. Um, it's such a... Um, I suppose in some ways in our 21st century perspective um, and in the evangelical church um, movement and at, at large, um, it's sadly become quite a controversial subject. Um, I think unnecessarily so. Uh, but as we study it together, I trust that the Lord will enlighten each one of us to know his, his mind a little bit better. We'll not be able to deal with it in a lot of detail um, by nature of it being a podcast. But if there's any questions that come out from it that you want to um, raise with me, I'm happy to speak about it at any time. So please feel free to come speak to me about uh, these issues. We'll read First Corinthians chapter 13 from verse number 2 to verse number uh, 16 uh, together. Uh, maybe per, perhaps I should say, unless you think I'm I'm just dodging verse number one, um, it really fits back into the section previously in Cor um, Corinthians. You'll see at the end of chapter 10, he's been speaking um, about the example of the Apostle Paul uh, and so on. Um, As I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they might be saved. Uh, he's been speaking about his example and how he uses his Christian liberty. And really that's a subject that runs from chapter 6 to chapter 11, um, Christian liberty. And then he says in verse number 1 of chapter 11, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And really the context is that subject, the subject of um, liberty and so on. So it doesn't really relate to what he's saying from now. It's a bad split um, of verses, really. It would be better if um, verse number 2 was verse number 1 of chapter 11. But we leave it the way it is. Let's read <coughs> chapter 11 together in the New King James Version and try to understand something about what it means, uh, even just briefly. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonours his head. But every one who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonours her head, for that is one and the same, as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image, he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from the woman, but the woman from man. Now the man, the man was created, nor was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority in her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as Woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. 
Church among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that a man have long hair, it's a dishonour to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her? For her hair was given her for a comer. Anyone seems to be contentious. We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now we'll just commend ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just pray that as we come to this wonderful subject, that we might appreciate again something of thy uh, beauty as seen in thy word. We think of, of, of some of the, the deep thoughts that Paul is going to draw out of a simple head covering. We, we thank thee for it and we remember that he loads into it so much of biblical truth. And so we would be remiss not to think about it. And it would be wrong of us to discard this idea or this truth lightly. And so, Father, we would pray for help to understand it better um, and that as a, as a local church we each might uh, benefit from a deeper knowledge of what it really means. We deliver ourselves in thy presence and pray thy blessing in the Lord's name. Amen. Okay, so we're coming to the subject of what I've termed displayed headship in the local church. Um, pictured headship or, or displayed headship. We've tried to identify what the Bible says about the local church so far. We've noticed there's a universal aspect of the church and also local churches in specific localities. The Church of God at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. Now if you have your hand out, and I hope you do, um, the first point I make is that there are pictures to enjoy which describe the local church throughout the New Testament. It's spoken of as the temple of God, emphasising the need for holiness and purity, as a chaste virgin betrothed to Christ, emphasising the need for fidelity to Christ in our teachings, as body of Christ in its functionality, as God's cultivated field, God's building, emphasising that it's God who's working through us to grow something and build something for his glory. And, and these are only a few of some of the beautiful pictures there are. Um, it's really important if we want to appreciate our fellow believers um, if, to meditate on some of these beautiful pictures and to appreciate what God is doing for each other um, as a local church as we gather together so the pictures that we enjoy that describe the local church but then there are also the pictures and symbols within the functioning of the local church now just a few symbols not that many but there are a few truly biblical Symbols expected of believers. Baptism, for instance. We're expected as believers to be baptised. Um, it symbolises the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It identifies with uh, us with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection. Um, that's Romans 6 truth and, and different passages in the New Testament. The Lord's Supper is another one. We'll think about that hopefully in the next study. So, I would argue that displayed headship is another symbol. People often ask, why do women in your church wear head coverings? The short and not very explanatory answer is because the Bible says so. But really, Paul wants them to get beyond that. Of course it's because the Bible says so. We hope We'll come to that conclusion quite quickly. But Paul is going to say, 
I'm praising you because not only um, that you remember me and, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you, but he says, I want you to understand why you're doing it. So God doesn't only give us what to do in this case to show um, headship, display headship uh, in the local church, um, to show gender distinctions, to express those distinctions in the covering or non-covering of the heads of a man and a woman. Um, the woman's head being covered, the man's head being not covered. Um, God wants that and wants us to do that, not just because he says it, but because we can draw from it a wonderful truth about himself, about his son. And so when we come to a passage like this, we should be saying, how can I glorify Christ in this passage? How can I try to enjoy what this is so that when I try to honour and obey the Lord in doing it, whether it be with them, the men uncovered or the, or the women covered, that it becomes something real to me. It's not, it's not just that I'm doing it because I say so. It's in the Bible somewhere and I do it because really it keeps everybody happy or, or even I'm doing it because I know it's right to do. But God wants us to enjoy this truth. And so that's really important that we understand. We'll, we'll try and move down the passage and just as we go down it, pick up things as we're going that might help us to understand it better. Now, I will say that he makes a few main arguments. Paul makes arguments that relate to God and Christ. Um, he makes arguments that are creatorial, relation to man and woman. Um, and then he makes arguments which I would say are secondary arguments that we'll pick up on the way down. For instance, um, he'll, he'll speak about the idea of common sense down to verse 13 to 15 uh, and church practice and these are good sub-arguments but they're not his main argument so we're going to focus on his main arguments and we'll take we'll bring in the other arguments as we go down as it comes together we'll see that what we have is a composite argument an argument from creation from the very um, character of God himself uh, from the distinctions between male and female from the local church practice and also from what they should have expected. He, he draws all these things together into this subject of head covering. So let's look at it together for a little while. I, I praise you that you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. That you remember me in all things. Now what Paul is saying here is not that they had a whole lot of hoary traditions that they were keeping going just the way um, the, the Jews kept on the traditions of the elders like how they washed the pots and pans and so on. The idea behind this traditions is the thought of something that was passed on or transmitted. Now Paul had been given things and he had transmitted them on to the local church by God. And this idea of traditions, ordinances, sometimes I think the authorised has ordinances, it, it has this idea of simply something that's been transmitted, that's been delivered. And so Paul has delivered to them not just some old, old hoary tradition that comes from the elders in the Jewish past, 
but rather something that came from the Lord. And But what's happening is that they're holding to it as a tradition, as a transmission. They're saying, well, we got it from Paul, so we do it. They don't know why they're doing it. They know what they're doing. It's like sometimes with, with Isaac or Hannah, the kids, what, what happens is that I have to just tell them to do or not do something. And they might say, but why? And I might just say, well, because your daddy tells you. That was kind of the way they were at. Because Paul had told them they were doing it. But now Paul's going to say, listen, but I want you to know. You notice that, verse number uh, three. I want you to know. I, I want you to understand why you're doing what you're doing. As my little boy grows up a little bit more, there are some things that I've said to him, no, you can't do that. I'll be able to say to him, here's why you couldn't do that. Now you can maybe see why I say this. And, and, and as they're maturing, or as they should be maturing as a local church, they should be understanding why they're doing what they're doing. Now that's important for us. We, we want to be able to grow as Christians. It's not just good enough to be able to say to people, listen, you know, I cover my head because I say so in 1 Corinthians 11. I mean, the, the response might be, as we th thought about another week, the response to that might be, well, why don't you implement face wash? Why don't you implement food washing? Does it not say that in John chapter 13? And you might be stumped if you haven't thought that one through. You see, God wants us not just to follow what he says. He does want us to trust and obey, that's true. But he wants us to try and understand why he has said it. Particularly when he gives us the explanation as he does here. So let's try and understand it in a bit more detail. Verse number three. What he's going to do first of all, and there's different ways that we can divide this passage up, but first of all he's going to relate the whole idea of divine headship, a displayed headship, to God and Christ. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, or the head of woman is man more accurately, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. You see, they didn't understand that what was being brought to them was actually something that was a far bigger thing than perhaps they had given credence to. You see, you see, it would seem that just putting a some form of cloth or some head covering over a woman's head wouldn't be this important. Well, this is why he's telling us it is important. I want you to know that headship is seen in every strata of the universe. The head of the man is the Christ. The head of every man is the Christ. He is the we know from other passages he's the firstborn over all creation and he has been given that realm of headship above man. Then he says something else that's harder for us to swallow in the 21st century. The head of woman is man. In other words, that man has been given a place of, um, of responsibility, of, of, of rank we might say. That's a difficult word to use in these circumstances 
of relative position, another word we could use, the head of woman is man. In other words, he's been given a relative position in God's ordering above the woman. And the head, notice this, the head of Christ is God. Now, now think about this for a minute, because he is mentioned, we'll think about the last bit first. He's mentioned that the head of Christ is God. Now, now Christ and God are essentially equal. As to their essence, they're equal. No. Christ um, is God manifest in flesh. Lord Jesus Christ, he came forth from the Father. He's the Son of the Father. Um, they picked up stones to stone him because he called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews knew what that meant. Thomas knew as he bowed before him and he said, My Lord and my God. He was eternally and essentially in the form of God. And yet, the head of Christ is God because the Lord Jesus Christ takes a position, a relative position of submission, of subjection under God. And as the Lord moved through the scene of time, he was obeying the will of his Father. I do always those things to please the Father. Uh, he was fulfilling the desires of the Father. He was voluntarily submitting to the Father, to God. And so here we have the thought that we're not dealing with essential equality or inequality because if the head of Christ is God and they're both essentially equal, um, it's something we can then transmit to the idea of man and woman. It's not here the thought that necessarily man a woman is inferior to man in any way. She might be far superior in certain ways and essentially as to the, their, to the essential nature, she is human, she is therefore um, equal to man. The idea is a thought of relative position. Um, that, that God will invest in man headship, leadership roles. The woman is more relational. The, the woman has other roles. And it is her, should be her desire and her delight to subject herself to the man that God gives her in a husband. If we're looking at that specific relationship. Or if she's still in the home, she should be willing to be and try to be um, subject to her father uh, in that sense. As the man uh, in the home. Now, now, there's more could be said there. For instance, that the parents should be careful not to provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's not a tyranny that we're speaking about here. It's the thought of voluntary submission. Okay? Now it's important we get these things in order. Now notice the first statement. I've kind of worked backwards here. The head of every man is the Christ. So what we have is that every man should be willing to be subject to the Christ. It doesn't say the head of every woman is the man, as, as though he's some... But just generally, the principle, the head of woman, is man. In other words, when they're brought together in relationship, specifically in marriage, 
and other more general relationships, it is man who is meant to take the leadership role in those relationships. That will be seen in the local church with overseers, for instance. It's seen in the home with fathers and husbands. Okay? So, I think that's as much as we can say at this point. This is a God-ordained thing. God has done this. Therefore, we must bow to it. So, the man has every... There's no point in a man speaking about a woman being under him if he is not willing to acknowledge the headship of Christ in his life. Because the only way a man can fulfill being a head in his home, in the assembly, in, in, in the sense of leadership, is if, if he's willing to be voluntarily subject to Christ. And so the man who's willingly willing to be voluntarily subject to Christ, for instance, in relation to his wife, he must love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So we've got to get the priorities right here. We cannot use this as some sort of battering ram against women. That is essentially not what it's saying. The head of the woman is the man, a spiritual woman, should be wanting and trying to be subject to the husband, for instance, that God has given to her. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. He was always voluntarily subject to God, his Father. Now, having dealt with that idea of headship, and perhaps there is a thought of difference between headship and lordship. Lordship, not necessarily needing... When it comes to lordship, it can be imposed in a certain sense. You know, There will come a time when every knee shall bow to to Jesus and mention that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and um, Philippians chapter 2 that, and if they don't buy they'll be forced to buy so there's a sense in lordship of, of, of force involved but however when it comes to headship there's a thought of the voluntary nature of it your, your head your hand voluntarily follows the directions of your head you know your, your mind thinks that your hand moves so it's a voluntary thing it's an organic thing and that's what God expects um, when, when we see it in, in local church settings and in the local, uh, uh, local home settings as well. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonours his head. What does that mean? Well, it seems to mean something like this, and you could develop it in different spheres. But he's speaking about the local church sphere. I take it. Now, we could deal with that and have discussions about that. But... Praying, that's speaking to God. Prophesying, that's speaking for God. And it seems to be public. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, his physical head covered, he dishonours his head. Who's his head? Or what's his head? You say, well, he dishonours his own physical head. I don't think that's the point. The point he's just saved from the verse before is that the head of every man is Christ. So for a man to pray with something on top of his head as covering it, he is dishonouring his head because it's as though Christ is being covered. It's as though Christ is somehow being dishonoured and not displayed. But every woman who prays or prophesies, now you, we might argue with how this works itself out publicly. Um, chapter 14 you deal with the idea of teaching and so on for a woman. Um, but the woman, and, and he shows there very clearly that it's not right for a woman to be publicly teaching um, in the, the local church 
That's clearly taught of in chapter 14. But here he's dealing, um, I take it with a sphere, um, of praying and prophesying. Now, whatever way we want to look at this, uh, and it's quite interesting just as to how we might fit it together, there seems to have been this thought behind it of, 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 of um, in the local church, or perhaps slightly wider than that, when the local church is being represented in a, a public way. And perhaps that allows for some of these ideas of praying and prophesying. But just coming back to it, involved in spiritual exercise in, in the local church, um, with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. How is she dishonoring her head when her head is uncovered? Well, her head is the man. His head is Christ. Christ should not be covered. The man should not be seen. It's a dishonor for the man to be seen. It's almost as though um, it's Christ that should be seen and not the man is the point that's being made. It's Christ that should be in prominence and the man, uh, what represents a man's head, should be seen as under authority, under some kind um, of, 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 of covering. And then, she, then he says more, and we'll come back to this statement, for this is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now what's he mean by that? Well, I really think, just hold it in your mind. So he's saying that for her to have uncovered her head, it dishonors her head, who is the man, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. That's her physical head again. So shaving her physical head in some way dishonors the man. Okay, if you can hold that in your thoughts. For if a woman, in looking at the next verse, my computer's just died on me. Um, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Now, let's maybe just deal with this in a little bit more detail. He's related, you see, to this uh, in this point to God and Christ. He showed the big picture. And then he's brought related to the local church. And he said, okay, if there's people praying and prophesying, um, there should, this should be seen in symbol. With head uncovered, head covered. Um, then he says, for the woman, um, if she does this, it's the same as if her head were shaved. And then he says, for if a woman is not covered, she might as well go the whole hog. Let her be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Now, is there a difference between shorn and shaven? I don't think there's a whole lot of difference. I think there's a little bit of difference. I think shorn has the idea of sh perhaps of, of cut short of man. I think shaved has the thought of cut off altogether. Um, and I think what happens is, you see, if, if she cuts her hair short like a man, it's her wanting to take her place but being out of place as though she was a man, if it's shaved right off, it's her like her trying to deny the whole principle of headship. Now, I take it, if you want to make a slight distinction, that was would be the only distinction I could really uh, think would be here, but that's, that's my own take on those verses. The, the real essential point that's being made here is this. For her... To not cover her head not only brings dishonour on her head, the man, um, it does it by her denial 
of what that relationship really is. Headship and submission, or subjection, I should say. Um, the thought of of complementarianism, we'll think about that in a minute, of, of relationships, of, of the woman being willing to subject herself, for instance, and to, to submit in a marriage relationship to a man who is willing to love her and honour her, uh, willing to allow him to be the leader in the home, willing to allow him to be the leader in the assembly when it comes to um, the, the overseers. And, and there's that sense in which what he's saying is she might as well go and go the whole hog and take off the hair, take it all off, if she's not willing to do something like this, like simply covering her head and so on. Now, verse 7 to 10, he relates it not just to God and Christ, or not just to the local church, he now relates it to creation and to creation order. You see, he goes back to Genesis now, and Paul does this often in his writing, so we know that we should be going back to Genesis, especially that for those first sections of Genesis often, because Paul does it. Paul draws so much um, of, of his teachings, of his truth, out of the early chapters of Genesis. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, he says, He's given a secondary reason, I take it. A second reason, I should maybe say. Um, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now there's a sense in which man was the first and fresh from the hand of God. And therefore, if you were to look upon Adam as he was, representative, as it were, of God, uh, vice-regent in the earth, he was something of the image and glory of God. He was representative of God. And also, he, was, he showed something of the character of the God who made him. You would have looked upon Adam uh, and said, Wow, what a wonderful creature. And that would, have ref that would have been a kind of reflected glory of the glory of God. Because God was the one who created him. So an author writes a brilliant book. It makes you appreciate that author more. Um, a, a, a creation that comes from the hand of God it brings glory to God um, as Adam did um, particularly in his unfallen state um, so he's the image and glory of God but the woman she's something else she is by the way she is something additional to that she is I take it here the contrast is between the glory of God and the glory of man the woman is the glory of the man. How is the woman the glory of man? Well, she comes from the man. Now, the man came from the hand of God. The woman comes out of the side of the man. And so you would look at the woman. You might have seen the glory of God in her. But you also would have seen the glory of the man. You said, what kind of creature did this man or did this woman come out of? He must have been extremely bright, intelligent, wonderful. And so there's a sense in which the woman is the glory of the man. Now, she's not the image of the man. She's the image of God. We know that from Genesis 1. Uh, I take it, um, she's the whole of human humanity have been endowed with the image of God. But she is the glory of man as well. And therefore, that glory, I take it, um, is, is going to come into focus in a moment. There's a contrast being made. The man ought not to cover his head. And the, the contrast assumes that the woman should. Because he is the image and glory of God. In this sense, he came fresh from the hands of God. 
the woman is covered, I take it, because it symbolises, as it'll say, an authority, um, as we come down a little bit further. But perhaps there is the thought in it that the glory of man is being covered, but the glory of God should be seen, and this relates back to creation. Now, there's something else that's coming in here, and this is the idea of complementarianism. The man, for instance, was first, the firstness of man. This is Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Um, the foreness of the man, for man is not from the woman, but the woman from the man. She, she comes from him as a source, and then she is created for him, as it says in the next statement. Not nor was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. <clears throat> and then he says, now I'm going to give you another reason. He says, so there's this distinction made between the, the sexes. And, and we should honour God's distinctions in, between the sexes. Perhaps we should stop here for a second before going to the next point. God has made those distinctions. That's why the devil is trying to break them down. Right? That's pretty simple and straightforward. But this idea of, of fluid gender, this idea of 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 um, changing yourself from what you are. Broken and troubled, though many people are sadly by these conditions. Um, what I would say is this: the uh, the design is not the fault. And so, therefore, we come back to what God says, and He is saying that a man should be accepting of his role as a man. The woman should be accepting of her role as a woman. The man should be accepting of the creatorial um, obligations that come upon him as a man. The woman should be the same. And they are big on both sides. And so there's a beauty that's now being seen, a distinction that's being seen. And the only place where this is being worked out in real terms as we gather together as a local church in, in this world, it's something that the angels we're going to see are looking on and seeing a woman willing to be a woman and a man willing to be a man and there's a symbol that shows them. For this reason, the woman ought to have authority, a symbol of authority, on her head because of the angels. Now, that is interesting. He's related it to local church. He's related to creation. He now relates it to celestial observation. Now, what do we make of this? Well, we know that angels observe things. We know that they're seeing how God is working out his great program if we go to Ephesians. <clears throat> and so it's not a surprise that we find that angels are looking on at this. And of course, we know that angels as the non-elect angels, <clears throat> the, the, the fallen angels, they, they moved away from their sphere. They rebelled against the authority, the place that God had put them. Uh, the devil, or Lucifer, um, he said, I will be as the most high. He moved outside the realm that God had for him. And so there's a lesson here for angels. When man and women are seen enjoying the rules and, and accepting the rules that God has placed them in, in the local church, um, there, there is an observation. They can, they can see that redemption is changing men and women. Because in the old world, they, they saw when 
when Eve moved out of her place, they saw what happened then when Adam didn't fulfill his obligations of guarding the garden. Uh, and they saw the fall in that. And the angels observed that, no doubt. Now the angels are observing, as it were, almost a reverse, where the man is taking his place as a man and the woman is taking her place as a woman, allowing a symbol of authority uh, on her head because of the angel. I take it, the symbol meaning that she is under authority. And nevertheless, now having brought that out and having brought things that are hard for us in our 21st century context to speak about, nevertheless, neither is the man independent of the woman nor the woman independent of the man in the Lord. Okay, so it's not like he's saying that the only person that's important is the man. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the man is not independent of the woman. He's saying the woman is not independent of the man. We are both in this together under the lordship of Christ. How God has rearranged things. For as the woman came from the man, out of his side at the beginning, uh, Eve came from the side of Adam, even so man also comes through the woman. In other words, the reason every man since then has come into this world has been through a woman. But all things ultimately, he says, are from God. So he relates it to complementarianism, if you want to say what he's saying here. Now then he says, in, and these are secondary arguments that he gives. Now he's going to relate it to them. Judge among yourselves. Just think about this, he's saying. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? It would have seemed very improper in those days for that to be the case. He says, your, your instincts, as it were, are right in this case. It's not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. And that's the obvious answer to the question, by the way. Does, it, does not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a dishonour to him. If a woman has long hair, it's a glory for her. For her is given to her for a covering. Or her hair was given to her for a covering. So let's think about this just for a second. He's saying that the normal, the natural, the way the world has been, there's normally been a distinction seen between how a man wears his hair and how a woman does. If a man has long hair, it is a dishonour to him. That has just generally been a shameful thing for a man to have long hair. But if a woman has long hair, it's been a glory to her. And he says now, he, put, he places, he infuses purpose into it. He says, for her hair was given her for a covering. Now let's stop there. Because some people like to think that the covering the whole way down the passage, therefore, is the hair. But however, it is not consistent to take that view for very obvious reasons, as we'll see just in a second. First thing I would say is this, the word for covering here is completely different than the word for covering farther up. What he seems to be saying here, and we'll think of this first and then we'll think about uh, answering the question, her hair is given her in lieu of, <laughs> that's an old expression, instead of, I could read, a covering. So there you go, Andrew. It's We have to ignore everything down to this point. No, nope. 
um, unfortunately for those who push this view, um, they cannot substantiate that <coughs> from what we have as follows. Now, I'll give you my understanding of the verse, and then we'll move backwards. For her hair was given her instead of a veil. Now, the word for veil that's used here is the idea of a wraparound veil. And I take it we're going back to Genesis, to the garden again. And there was, what he's saying is that the woman actually was given her hair as a, a covering, almost like a modesty covering, I take it. Okay, so, so in other words, going right back into the depth of, of nature itself, the reason why a woman tends to like to wear her hair longer than a man, and a woman tends to find it a shameful thing, and people find it a shameful thing for a, a man to have long hair. He says it all goes back to something that is innate right at the beginning. 